up, y'all? This is John Lawrence with Anesthesia Guidebook, and this is episode 92, How to Prevent Periprosthetic Joint Infections with Dr. Brian McGrory. This episode is coming out on January 28th, 2023. Dr. Brian McGrory is an orthopedic joint replacement surgeon at Maine Medical Center in Portland, Maine, and this is the second time that Dr. McGrory has joined me on the podcast, the first being way back in episode 25 when we discussed how to prevent hypothermia during joint replacement surgeries. That episode included a special look at the controversy around various warming devices that are used in the OR and whether any of them are linked to surgical site infections. In this episode, Dr. McGorry and I take a more detailed look at how to prevent surgical site infections in periprosthetic joint replacement surgery. The significance of these infections for patients cannot be overstated. We discuss the particulars around why a joint infection is often considered a devastating outcome for patients that at best results in months of continued aggressive therapy and at worst can lead to amputation of the limb or even death. I'm incredibly grateful for Dr. McGrory's continued focus on improving quality of care and for coming on this podcast to speak directly to anesthesia providers about how we can join in those efforts and help create great outcomes for surgical patients. Dr. McGorry earned his bachelor's degree in chemistry biology at Cornell. He then attended medical school at Columbia University, followed by residency in orthopedic surgery at the Mayo Clinic Graduate School, where he also earned a master's degree in orthopedic research. He then completed a fellowship through Harvard University at Massachusetts General Hospital in adult hip and knee reconstruction. He has served as the research director for orthopedics at Maine Medical Center and as the founding editor-in-chief of Arthroplasty Today, which is a publication of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. Before we get to the show, I want to give a special shout out to all the CRNAs and SRNAs out there, as this last week was National CRNA Week, and also to the physician anesthesiologist who will celebrate National Physician Anesthesiologist Week this coming week. February 20th will mark the National Thank a Fellow in Resident Week, and March 27th kicks off National Anesthesia Tech Week. At Maine Medical Center, where Brian and I both practice and where I currently serve as the chief CRNA, our group throws one united awesomeness of anesthesia week (laughs) in the middle of February each year to acknowledge and celebrate all of these anesthesia providers and team members. I've always said that if we Venn diagrammed physician anesthesiologists, CRNAs, residents, and SRNAs in terms of everyone's expertise, knowledge, and skill base, passions, and interests, and even their personalities, we have far more in common than we do that's different. Finding ways to work together to address the challenges present in healthcare right now while creating environments where everyone can thrive is critical not only for provider well-being, but also the delivery of cost-effective and high-quality anesthesia services. So thank you for all of the hard work that you put in to take care of your patients, and thank you for checking out the podcast. With that, let's get to the show. Well, Dr. McGurry, welcome back to the podcast. I'm stoked to talk to you again. I am stoked to talk to you as well, John. Thank you. <laughs> so we're here today to talk about periprosthetic joint infections. So this is when patients have infections following joint replacement surgery. This is a very important topic for you and your patients, of course. Help us understand the magnitude of this problem. Well, joint infections, like other 
operative infections are devastating to patients. But there's a higher level with orthopedic infections because bone blood supply is very low compared to other um, organs in the body. And with low blood supply, of course, you can't get the antibodies there, you can't get antibiotics there, so infections can become chronic and they're harder to eradicate. The next level up are joint replacements where you have um, implants that are inert in the body, polymethylmethacrylate, polyethylene, metals. These things, of course, don't have a blood supply and bacteria adhere to them, make a glycocalyx and protect themselves from the immune system. So again, very difficult to eradicate and a huge fear of orthopedic surgeons and their patients because you have patients coming in that are otherwise active and independent in most cases for joint replacement patients. And then they have a devastating complication that's hard to eradicate. So in that sense, very, very devastating. What about the numbers? Well, it varies depending where you are in time. Early on in joint replacement history, infections were 10%. That was before we used uh, antibiotics. So this is the 70s. And uh, fast forward till now where we're really honing in and doing clinical research to minimize the risk of infections, the very best high-functioning, high-volume hospitals and clinics have about a 0.4 to 1% infection rate in joint replacement. So that's kind of the average that... Uh, you can get you can't really get it down to zero, and we'll talk about why that is. Yep. Although that's our goal, and of course, as you go above that for each infection you have over the average, again, it's devastating because you you didn't have to have that if you applied the research that we think we can apply to minimize infection. Right. Right. The word that you use to describe this as devastating for these patients is a word that I have heard you use in the past, other orthopedic surgeons use. And it's also quite common in the literature, that that description that these are devastating infections. Will you help us understand the typical course that a patient experiences when they get a, a periprosthetic joint infection? So I think a lot of anesthesia providers are you know, uh, and, and even patients are familiar with, you know, getting a joint replacement. They come in, they have surgery, they go to rehab. But what happens? What's the typical course for someone who actually gets one of these infections? That's a great way to frame this. So I'll give you an example of a patient that has the in-between course, not the, we took care of it early and you're fine, or the went on to, you know, mortality or severe morbidity. So the average on the bell curve, the average patient. So this is someone that's prepared for their surgery. They've taken it seriously. They've maybe seen two providers and gotten two opinions, and they decide they're going to go ahead. They've failed non-surgical management. And so they prepare for surgery, and they fit it into their life. And they fit in you know, the surgery itself, and let's call it a two- to three-month recovery till they're 100%. They might go back to work earlier than that and driving earlier than that with modern techniques, but that's what they've built into their life. Mm-hmm. But they have the rest of their life beyond that. They have a family wedding. They have a vacation that they were planning on going on. They have work that they need to uh, do to support themselves and their family. So they come in, they have the surgery. It goes well. We talk to their family. They start working on range of motion and strengthening. And all of a sudden, there's some drainage from the incision or they have a temperature. Mm -hmm. So they come into the office and we assess them and we do some blood tests to make sure that it's not a, a, a deep infection. And sure enough, 
we do those tests and we find out that there's bacterial growth inside the joint, okay? Mm -hmm. So they've had an early infection following a total joint replacement, okay? At that point, we've talked about the complication beforehand, but they haven't really thought about it right. because, you know, when you're preparing for a surgery, you hope for the best and you prepare right. for the worst. So now we have to go into the second mode and it's almost always operative treatment for a deep infection. So essentially they have to be admitted to the hospital. They, we have to find out the, the bacteria that's causing the infection. And then the treatment, it usually is irrigation, debridement, often um, exchanging a portion of the implant to get as much of the you know, devitalized tissue or prosthetic tissue out. And then uh, a course of intravenous antibiotics for a minimum of six weeks. Mm -hmm. So now essentially we're restarting the clock with a second surgery, uh, the trauma to the area, you know, the blood loss, the you know, nutrition issues that you have with another surgery. Um, and, and so then that patient needs intravenous antibiotics. So usually someone will have to come into the home or one of their um, family will have to learn how to give intravenous antibiotics. And that requires, you know, weekly laboratory testing mm -hmm. to make sure that the antibiotics aren't you know, affecting their, you know, overall health, et cetera. And usually if they're doing well with that at six weeks, you can stop the intravenous antibiotics. And the current thinking is you might continue oral antibiotics for a period of time. And of course, any antibiotics that can help you can also hurt you. Right. We think of C. diff, we think of, uh, you know, bacteria, uh, you know, overgrowth or um, colonization of mm -hmm. a, of a, of a um, resistant, anti, uh, resistant bacteria, et cetera. So essentially now they're on this path where they are susceptible to that infection always being there when they come off the yeah. oral antibiotics or... Uh, even if they're not, they always have a you know, local immune system that's been compromised by multiple surgeries and an infection. And if you look at so that's an individual patient. That's a great way to frame it. Yeah. And, and of course, there's the patients that six weeks, they're perfect. And then there's the patients that go on to you know, an amputation or something where you can't get control of the infection. Right. So, but, but that's the, the typical the patient. Course, but right. even the typical course is so much more than they signed up for when they signed up for their right. hip or knee or shoulder. Now, if you look, if you, you know, look from afar, as we do these days with big data, um, one of the things that's, that's really interesting is patients that have an, a periprosthetic infection are at a very high risk of morbidity and mortality. So let's just look at the mortality so that we can kind of look at it in that way. So there's a, a group at, at Jefferson and Rothman Institute that has looked at this many different ways. And they've compared the mortality of patients that have a revision for non-infectious causes like loosening or fracture mm -hmm. to um, a huge subset of patients that have had a revision for infection. Right. And what they found was that the infection uh, group had a very high mortality rate compared to the non-infection group. And they actually compared it to some cancers um, that uh, we commonly think of. And so if we look at the five-year survival, so the relative mm -hmm. survival of patients that have had a periprosthetic infection, it actually is worse than three major cancers that we know of, prostate cancer, melanoma, and breast cancer. At five years, if you've had one of those diagnoses, you have a higher relative survival than if you've had a periprosthetic infection. That's, that's remarkable, just to... Just to highlight that, you know, when I when I saw that data, that was very interesting. That 
that there you have a you have a higher likelihood of surviving breast cancer than you do a periprosthetic joint infection. Yeah, at five years, and obviously, you know, we're not exactly comparing apples sure. to apples, right? A lot of patients with breast cancer are otherwise healthy. A lot of patients that go on to infection, and we'll talk about why, have other medical problems. Right. But in That's general, we think of um, a joint infection or a surgical infection as kind of an inconvenience. But I, you know, one of the, the things that we have to highlight here is that it's a devastating problem from the literature, mm-hmm. that word. And, and we're very fearful of it as surgeons because we worry for our patients. They don't necessarily, we don't want them to worry about every little thing, but we know what the big picture is. And so if there's anything that we can do uh, to minimize that risk, one less infection, we should do it. And we should focus on that because it's such a, a complicated problem for the patient and their family to deal with. And it's such a high morbidity and even mortality um, outcome if there's something we can do as anesthesia providers, as orthopedic surgeons, as primary care physicians, we should do it. And so that's a, a, a reason that I wanted to have this discussion right. because um, I don't think that that's been highlighted. It certainly wasn't highlighted during my education. And, and a lot of this information is new information, but it's, it's worth talking about. Well, let's talk about it. Let's. So, what what are the, what are some of the leading things that we can do in order to prevent these surgical site infections? Well, I think if you take a step back, one of the things that I talk to students about and talk to you know um, you know my own team about is you know drilling down and how do surgical infections happen? I yep. think I think sometimes we get so caught up in all the CME and textbook, you know, uh, Krebs cycle uh, kind of information that we don't necessarily, or I didn't necessarily think of, well, how does this happen? And so the way I put it to, to students is that there's a balance, and it's a statistical balance, but there's a balance between the patient's immune system, and that's just one big bucket that you mm-hmm. can do a million things to improve, and contamination. The OR is not sterile. It's not a sterile place. It's a clean place, but study after study shows that there's bacteria in the OR, okay? And that bacteria load will grow during the course of a case. So that blows the mind of some medical students because they think, well, I scrubbed at the sink, we're sterile. We're not sterile. If you did PCR testing during the OR, there's bacteria everywhere. And so statistically, the two buckets that are fighting one another are the patient's immune system, which clears any contamination that happens, and the amount of contamination that happens during the surgery. So as a patient surgeon, I explain that to them, and I work very hard to, quote unquote, optimize them ahead of time to build up their immune system. Thumbnail sketch are the most important things. They're not the sexy things, but it's nutrition, exercise, stress reduction, and support. Those are the things. No special steroids or, you know, supplements or teas or essentially (laughs) if a patient, you know, can um, be fit and have good exercise coming in, has good nutrition coming in, has support of their family and stress reduction, those are the the big hitters for preparation for surgery. Which is great. I mean, that highlights a holistic approach to how your body, uh, how how to support the immune system and how to generally just be healthy to manage the stress of surgery. Exactly. And it's easier said than done when you're in pain and when you're, you know, not yourself because of uh, end-stage joint arthritis. So we're simplifying, but 
That's the goal. And then we help them by doing the things that research has shown us are important ahead of time. Smoking cessation, getting to a healthy weight or a better weight, um, essentially diabetic control, nutrition where you, you know, check someone's transferrin or their serum albumin, some surrogate for, um, you know, for their immune system health and nutrition. We go through all of those things and we, and we do a lot of work. And, and a lot of times patients have been followed by their primary care physician, but they don't feel like they can do those things or want to do those things. And, and we kind of use the leverage of, do you want surgery to, to get them in shape? So some of them appreciate it, appreciate it. Yep. some of them feel like we're being heavy handed, but the bottom line is we know what can happen if we don't do that. And we're not willing to, to hurt a patient if we can help them. So, so that, those are the preparatory things. Right. And then there are some other things during surgery, of course, that we'll talk about. Maintaining normothermia is one of them. Um, essentially giving the right antibiotic at the right time. These are things that support the immune system. And then on the other side, the contamination side, we work hard as surgeons to be efficient so the mm-hmm. wound's not open a long time, you know, to, you know, have a, a room that's essentially up to code as far as um, laminar airflow and filtration. And one of the things that we can do as practitioners is minimize OR traffic. OR traffic increases that contamination that happens because we bring in bacteria on our skin and our hair, and every time the door swings, the laminar flow, which is essentially the protective airflow in the room, gets disrupted, and and more OR traffic brings in more bacteria. Using um, long sleeve um, OR attire is important, and we use special suits during the surgery or whatnot, so you could go on and on and on, but there are hundreds of touches that help boost the immune system and hundreds of touches that minimize contamination. And there's three or four that we can talk about today that are directly related to, you know, the anesthesia provider and understanding how to minimize contamination and boost the patient's immune system. Right. I think it's fascinating to highlight the idea that the sterile field is not sterile. Right. That blew my mind as I came through training and began working as an anesthesia provider, because it's just what you think. You think uh, everything, you know, don't touch anything blue unless it's your patient is the adage that I tell students. Right. In anesthesia land. Uh, but it, it is fascinating to think about uh, the fact that the sterile field gets contaminated or or just has a bacterial load that increases throughout the case. So you see different practices with surgeons where you change gloves when it comes time to close or you lay out new sterile towels around the surgical field while you're closing. So uh, that's a really fascinating concept. I wonder if you would just take a moment to talk more about that and, and, and how uh, you as a surgical team, uh, as a surgeon and, and then with your surgical team, take efforts to minimize the contamination of the field and uh, maybe the rationale. I mean, is it universal that folks change their gloves towards the end of surgery? Are, are these things that are, that are more common in joint replacement surgery? Like what's, what's some of the evidence behind those actions? Well, those are uh, excellent points. And I think that what you're going to find is that different surgical teams treat this differently. Yep. Right. So the surgeon is the team leader oftentimes for the patient, uh, you know, on our side of the, uh, of the curtain and, um, and the team takes their cues from the surgeon. So 
I happen to be one of the guys that, one of the people that takes it very seriously and wants to explain this to people, but I see surgeons that either don't know this information or minimize its importance. But let's just start from the fact that I'm a detail guy and I care about all the different things. And we don't even have time to talk about all of them. But let's talk about field contamination. So when you prepare the patient's skin, Preoperatively in the morning of surgery, they will, you know, we have them wash with HibaCleanse. If they happen to be a MRSA carrier, and we know that, or a staph carrier, we have them decolonize ahead of time. So that's before you come into the operating room. When you come into the operating room, uh, I usually like to uh, remove the hair with the clippers, but I like to do that with the patient. We do the, let's say, uh, uh, surgery uh, supine for knees and lateral for hips, but I like to do that in a way where we collect the hair that comes off and we remove it and put it in the bottom of the trash can without getting it around the room. Right. And then uh, we, again, wash the patient's skin. So we use, you know, a mechanical scrub and then we use two different antiseptics, alcohol and hydrogen peroxide, because they each have a different profile for killing bacteria, hydrogen peroxide for uh, C. acnes. And so that's where we start from at the surgical site. Then we use a um, DuraPrep type of long-acting alcohol that also helps with drape adhesion. So one of the things that we do in joint surgery is we use a drape that adheres right to the skin. So it's kind of like wearing gloves. When I was a medical student, we would have the patient's skin open to us. And I know some surgical practices have to do that or choose to do that, but essentially skin has bacteria no matter how you scrub the surface. And so if you don't cover that up, it's like the surgeon not wearing gloves. So we do all of that before we make the skin incision. During the surgery, we want to be efficient You don't want to rush it, but you want to close the wound as soon as possible. You want to cover the wound if you have to move the lights for a large um, distance because essentially over time, you know, you can get um, particulate debris on the lights and they can fall into the wound. We like to irrigate with um, antibiotic solution or, you know, uh, saline uh, multiple times during the surgery. And we like to essentially have very good sterile technique, including if you're changing positions on the same side of the table, rotating back to back. So those are just some things that we do to minimize contamination at the field. I would say as far as gloves, you asked specifically about gloves, it's a little bit more complicated than just changing them. In orthopedics, we use double gloves in general because we're working with sharp bone uh, fragments. We're working with a lot of sharp tools and whatnot. And years ago, One of my colleagues at the Mayo Clinic did a study where they changed the outer glove every hour on the hour. And when they did that, and they essentially used a a gas to check if there were hole punctures, there were many hole punctures that went unnoticed. So if you have hole punctures, now you have potential contamination from your skin. So changing the gloves makes sense um, if if you have a long case. Um, We like to change it after we drape in case you know we've inadvertently touched something that's not sterile and toward the end of the case sometimes we take off the outer glove i don't typically change gloves immediately before the closure mm. but i change them frequently during the surgery if there's any contamination with the indicator the only other thing that i do that's kind of unique at least in our setting here is i use blunt needles so it's very It takes a little bit of getting used to, but to use a blunt needle, but with the blunt needle, you have way less um, needle sticks. That's safe for everybody, but it also helps with infection control because if you have a needle stick and you don't notice it, you can be putting a contaminated needle into the the, uh, tissue. Also, 
even if you go through you know, the gloves but don't have a needle stick, we know from Chris Moran's study that I was telling you about that a lot of times there's inadvertent you know, glove punctures. So right. with, um, with blunt needles, it's safer for everybody and lower risk of inadvertent punctures and contamination. So again, all these little touches to minimize right. uh, contamination. And right. you might say, well, how does that play out? Well, if we look at my infection rate, Compared to, you know, national numbers, it's in the bottom quartile or a standard deviation lower. And I can't tell you which one of these things, you know, is the most important. I haven't done that study. But because infection rates, thank goodness, are so low these days, about four in a thousand deep infections, I think that we'll never know. You'd have to, you know, right. do have so many cases to figure it out. So as long as these things aren't onerous on the staff, as long as they're not expensive, maybe even just the fact of thinking about them is what's keeping the infection rate down. Whatever it is, as long as it's not onerous or expensive, I think it's worth doing. I think that's a good point. You know, we talked about that a little bit in the previous podcast that we did, which is episode 25 on Anesthesia Guidebook, where we talked about preventing hypothermia. So there's, we have a whole deep dive on that topic. But you know, when, when we when we looked at the issue of how to keep patients warm, and there's two touch points on that I just want to bring up here, the use of forced air warmers in the OR, or just raising the temperature in the operating room. And to your point, you know, we don't necessarily know precisely through, you know, very robust randomized control trials of thousands of patients which one of these issues might be the trigger point for a surgical site infection. But if they're not onerous, if they're not too much of a burden on staff, then they may be worth looking at implementing. So avoiding bear huggers in the OR and doing some other techniques to bolster normothermia perioperatively has been a very reasonable choice for our, for our team, you know, keeping people, you know, we pre-op warm folks with bear huggers in the, in the pre-op area, uh, keep them covered as much as possible with warm cotton blankets in the OR, use a fluid warmer. These things are not too arduous to engage in, and it helps maintain normal thermia. And then on your end, you know, you're also able to keep the room a little cooler uh, for surgeon and team preference and comfort so that, you know, you're not distracted or bothered by the warm air in the room. But it is hard. I think we've talked about this in the OR before that it's hard to, to pinpoint exactly what might be the specific cause of a surgical sign infection. So you're kind of taking this, this blanket approach to let's minimize all the little points that we can in order to give the patient the best shot possible of getting through the OR safely without a surgical sign infection. So you've got some other things that you want to talk about. Let's talk about door swings. It's kind of a big issue. Yeah, door swings can be tough, and you know one of the articles that may be in the in the program notes is one on a simple uh, solution to minimize door swings, which is essentially putting a sign on the door saying "total joint in progress." Yeah, and I think this highlights one of the issues that we have at a lot of institutions, which is how to institute programmatic changes how to get buy-in, how to get you know everybody to essentially take ownership of it. That's way beyond this particular uh, episode, but I would say that in general, if you have a healthy program, a high-functioning program, you usually can do those things better. And if you can do those things, essentially simple awareness is job one. It's kind of like with uh, your immune system. 
the simple things work the best, but sometimes they're hard to execute. Yeah. Nutrition, you know. Right. So same right. thing with this. Essentially, what what we know and agree on is that door swings in general increase contamination. Okay. And logically, we think that contamination increases infection. So how do we decrease door swings to decrease contamination to decrease infection? And essentially we talked a little bit about how that works. In an operating room, particularly a total joint operating room, there's laminar flow. There's fresh filtered air from the roof cascading down on the operating room table and going out through filters on the floor. And essentially, that's one way of minimizing any backflow or bacterial you know, skin debris that's floating in the air uh, from coming on the surgical field. Yep. So when you open the door, you lose the positive pressure that allows that cascading to happen. And now the OR table's not protected. So that's number one. Number two, all of us essentially have skin bacteria and flakes of skin that come off of us all the time. I think it's like a million bacteria per hour or something like that. So essentially wearing, you know, covering up our bodies as best we can, our hair, uh, uh, facial hair, and essentially sleeved OR attire, those things are very helpful. W one thing that was interesting to me is I read a study and they were talking about ultraviolet light, how that helps, because ultraviolet mm -hmm. light can kill bacteria. But one of the theories of why ultraviolet light works in the OR is that people keep covered up so that they don't get, <laughs> they don't get a burn on their skin. Yeah, and by doing that, that minimizes contamination. So I think you know door swings are very important. If you have a modern designed OR, and we don't have complete modern designed ORs in, in my practice, but if you do, you can essentially come through a substerile, and we prefer that. But if you have a retrofitted room or an old style room that just has one door, if you can call in the room yep. to, to ask your colleague if they're going to have a break uh, or if they need anything, or you know if you're bringing up uh, some... Uh, tools for me for the OR and, and it's for the next case. You don't have to come in the room and leave it. So I think just awareness and ownership of was that door swing worth it? Every time the door yeah, opens, interesting. my eyes go to the door. And the question is, was it necessary? Was it worth it? Why? Because I'm protecting the patient. And I know there's a slight statistical chance that that door swing could lead to an infection. Yep. It's not a one for one. It's probably a one in a thousand. But if you have enough door swings, it certainly uh, certainly can add up. And that the one article that um, we had talked about with the door swings showed that um, on average, door openings, if you haven't monitored or talked to um, patients about the, or talked to um, staff about the importance of door swings, the average number of door openings per case was 75. So 75 times during the case, the door opened. And what they found is just by essentially alerting patients that is important to minimize to door swing, uh, staff, excuse yep. me, alerting staff that it, it, it's um, important to minimize door swings by putting a, a sign on the door, they were able to sh decrease that to, to 40, almost cut it in half. Yeah. That's a lot of, I mean, that's a lot of door swings. You think about a case is hour, hour and a half, you know, 75 door swings. It's a lot of in and out. It's almost hard to believe, but then when you take notice of it, I mean, people are coming in and out quite a bit, you know, breaks for folks that are in the room, everyone from folks who are scrubbed in, the CST, the nurse, the anesthesia provider, maybe a physician anesthesiologist is popping in to see what's going on, uh, people bringing equipment in that 
is necessary. So it's a lot of door swing. So I want to, I want to just crack the lid on this topic open a little bit further. So when I was in school, there was a, there was a very strict rule at this facility that once basically, I, I want to say it was the joint capsule. Once that was open, it could have been incision to, to closure, very strong emphasis on zero door swings. Even if there was equipment bringing, being brought in, it would just crack the door open, you know, six inches to slide a tool in or something like that. But certainly no breaks for anyone in the operating room. That's not the practice here in Maine. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think it's a balance like other things that we do as far as, you know, supporting our staff, making sure that they're comfortable if you have to go to the bathroom, if you need a break. So I think you have to, you have, you can't be so rigid, but I would say that if you have a policy where everybody buys in and that's the, that's the norm, when you're coming up as a student, it just seems normal to you. Mm-hmm. And so we don't have that here. And again, we could talk about the psychology of it, but different surgeons come from different backgrounds and have placed different emphasis yep. on this. My preference would be that we instituted a policy similar to that. Maybe not quite as rigid, but I think, again, the, the less contamination, the better. I think the psychology and the decision-making is, is you know, human nature. If, you know, you see three surgeons that are equally thought of as excellent in the community and one of them has that policy and one of them has a open door policy pun intended you as a as a practitioner say well that's not an important thing you know you haven't done any data analysis you haven't researched it you haven't had this discussion that we're having today but essentially you go to the thing that's most convenient and the thing that's least um, cumbersome for you and, and the patient. So I think we have a little bit of that here. I think we don't have a universal policy and that's on us. That's on our department. If we think that it's important, we should do it. But I don't have control over that in my universe. So what I try and do is educate the room, explain to them why this is important. And in general, I've had really positive feedback and buy-in from practitioners because yep. they we're all here to help the patient. So if they understand what we're talking about today, uh, they'll, they'll choose to do this. Right. Even if it's not proven or even if the surgeon doesn't take this as uh, you know, the fight they want to fight. And that's, right. and that's one of the messages that I would love to share with your, you know, your audience here, which is as an anesthesia provider in the OR, you can take leadership in this role. You can't essentially tell the nurse not to have a break. I don't, sure. I don't think that would be appropriate. But you have control over the anesthesia team. You have control over your actions. And if you're doing those to the best of your ability based on clinical evidence, I think you're doing a great job for your patient. And yeah. so just by learning about this, by knowing that these things are important, even if your surgeon in the room doesn't know them or doesn't prioritize them, uh, I think you can still incorporate them without changing your practice dramatically. Yep. I think some very simple things, you know, making sure antibiotics are given on time, pre-warming your patients before they get to the OR, maintaining normothermia for your patients, covering the patients up when they're in the OR, using a fluid warmer, and then being aware and judicious about, you know, do you need a break? Do you do you need to go in the room if you're outside of the room? Do you need to go in the room to have a social chat? Maybe sounds a little bit too casual, but just to check in with someone. Could you make a phone call to see, 
hey, is everything going going okay in there? You know, if you're a physician anesthesiologist that is supervising care providers in the room, can you call in to see if things are, you know, if they need anything or things are going well? So like posting a sign on the door, hopefully this podcast is just a, a little piece of awareness that all of these little things add up. And like you said, it's about minimizing the things that might lead to contamination and then bolstering the things that might help protect the patient. So uh, hopefully this will be impactful for folks. I, I think it's a great opportunity to just check in and understand what's going on. And uh, you mentioned antibiotics, and I think I think that's a great you know aspect to talk about at this point. Yeah. Because I think we're all well aware of the timing of antibiotics. You know, antibiotics that have to be given over a long period of time, like vancomycin, you need to give early. We choose Ancef here as our cephalosporin. And I think we're all aware of that and the timing with our timeout procedures. I've found, at least here, that's a solved problem. Mm -hmm. The thing that I think would be super to share with everybody is the antibiotic choice. There's a lot of work being done on antibiotic choice, particularly in orthopedics and joint replacement surgery. And the two kind of take-home points that uh, were new to me and that I think are important are patients that say they have a penicillin allergy often don't. And we kind of know that, but we don't know the numbers. So the numbers are about 97% of people that think they have an allergy to uh, penicillin uh, do not. And kind of the only way to, to completely rule that out is with a, you know, a, a clinic that tests for that. And, right. and the high-functioning, high-volume joint centers have that. It's an expense probably, but the Mayo Clinic, for example, has that, and that's where that 97% came from. And why is that important? Well, the second point is that ANCEF, which is a, a cephalosporin that we use commonly in joint replacement, cefazolin, is the best antibiotic to use, bar none. It covers all the things that can lead to, almost all the things that can lead to a joint infection. Let's take MRSA out of the, out of the yeah. mix because we often know if patients a MRSA carrier. But if cephalosporin is used, the amount of infections is dramatically lower than if cephalosporin is not used. So yeah. this, is, this is new information that's very important for people to know. So um, the article that I'm talking about is Cody Wiles from the Mayo Clinic. And essentially... The thumbnail sketch is they compared all patients, I think they had 30,000 patients, all patients that had uh, a non-cephalosporin antibiotic and all patients that had a cephalosporin antibiotic before their primary joint replacement. Now, in a patient that's a known uh, MRSA carrier, if they had vancomycin to cover MRSA, they also had cephalosporin or they didn't. So essentially, yep. you you can still take that patient and put them in these two groups. When they looked at the two groups, the infection, the deep infection rate was less at a month, two months, a year, and 10 years. So the difference between those two groups grew over time. So I'm not sure what to make of that other than perhaps it was a low-grade infection that manifests later. Right. But um, at one year, the patients that had a non-cephalosporin antibiotic as their you know, preoperative antibiotic had a 0.61% increased chance of infection. Now, keep in mind that the infection rate, my infection rate here is 0.4%. So 
now you're doubling your infection rate if you're essentially yep. not giving a, a cephalosporin antibiotic. So I guess the, the take-home message is for us programmatically, it'd be great to have a, you know, a clinic that would test these patients ahead of time. But if we don't have that, you know, ask the, the pharmacy team to double check with the patient and really try and minimize the use of non-cephalosporin uh, antibiotics. So essentially you have to have a documented anaphylactic shock to cephalosporin, right. you know, in order to 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 kind of opt out. Right. And I think that's a, a real important take-home message because that's really the last thing we do at the timeout. We check if the patient had antibiotics. So you need to think about that ahead of time. You don't want to be making that decision and in that moment. Right. I think that's a great point. Uh, there is good data. We'll put links to all of these articles that you're talking about in the show notes to this episode if folks want to see the data. But there is very good data talking about you know the, the rates of cephalosporin allergies that are listed in patients and then compared to those who have a true anaphylaxis allergy. It's, it's, it's substantially less patients. So more times than not, of course, you should always actually interview the patient, check with the patient, check with the pharmacy team, have them interview the patient. Don't just take what you hear on the podcast to say ANCEF is always safe. There are times where it's not, but more times than not, when someone has a penicillin allergy listed on their allergy list, they actually can get cephalosporins uh, and be just fine with that. Yeah, I think it's 3%. Now, how do you determine what 3% it is? That's kind of beyond your responsibility as, you know, the anesthesia provider morning of surgery. Exactly right. But I think from an institutional point of view, we need to look at that. And you need to know when that choice is made that it increases the patient's uh, risk of infection. And you take that risk every time if, if anaphylaxis is the other choice. But I think having a program where you're aware of that and you share that with the patient, and maybe you do some testing uh, ahead of time as a surgeon, that would be the surgeon's responsibility. I think it's well worth it. Yeah, that's great. Well, Dr. McGorry, we've talked about so much today. What other points do you want to bring up before we close this out? I really feel like we covered all the things that were important, which is how infections happen, the pros and cons of, you know, boosting a patient's immune system and minimizing contamination. And we talked about some very specific new research that uh, shows us these little touches that are meaningful and impactful to minimize the risk of infection, which is potentially a uh, huge negative for society and for that individual. Yep. Well, that's fantastic. I can't thank you enough for bringing uh, your passion for patient safety and improving the quality that we all do, that we all bring to the operating room, whether it's from the surgery side of things or the anesthesia side of things, uh, bringing that passion to the podcast, sharing your interests, sharing this data uh, with folks on the podcast. It's been very valuable. I think uh, having the show on preventing perioperative hypothermia has been really helpful for a lot of anesthesia providers. So I appreciate you doing that one. And then coming back today to talk about, uh, you know, more specifically how to prevent surgical side infections, periprosthetic joint infections in particular. And uh, I, I think this has been very helpful to frame, again, just how devastating those infections can be. And then some pretty simple techniques in order to reduce the risk of those infections. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, John. I really appreciate it. Hey, y'all. John here. If you're digging the show, will you take a couple of minutes and drop a review of Anesthesia Guidebook on Apple Podcasts? 
Your comments and ratings help other people trust the show. Also, send a link to the podcast to your classmates and colleagues. Word of mouth is the best way for Guidebook to grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.